Hi, I'm Sean Griffin. Welcome to Kingdom in Context. Welcome back to Honor of Kings. This is episode three. I'm Sean Griffin, along with my co-host. Ken Eiderbrecht. How's it going, Sean? Hey, Ken. How are you doing this week? Good, man. I'm just as, just as good as last week. <laughs> good. Good. It's, uh, uh, it's always good to see you, man. Um, we, we had a good episode last week. We really dug in to chapter seven and eight of Enoch. And uh, this week, we're going to get a little further, start off with chapter nine, uh, last week we got introduced to the fallen angels and and well I say fallen but you know that's kind of a generic term we've used from from church over time um, the rebellious angels who descended in the days of Jared on Mount Hermon uh, to come and take wives for themselves and many of them actually did more than that many of them taught mankind some special skill sets uh, taught them things how to and as a result it just the, the text says it just created lawlessness corruption, godlessness, and um, and so we read about that last week, and this week we're going to get into some of the good guys, right? We're going to introduce to some of the good angels? That's correct, yeah. There are some good guys who genuinely care about Yahweh's laws and his uh, holiness and portraying it um, through their own actions, and um, them being ministering spirits that they are, they, they care about us, uh, and they cared about the, uh, the character's during the days of uh, Enoch chapter nine that we're going through or eight rather. And um, yeah, we're going to see them kind of interject here and, and uh, it'll be good times, Sean. Sounds great, man. All right. Well, uh, let's just jump right into it for everyone watching though. We want to thank you for watching. Um, uh, what we kind of decided to do is if you would put, if you have any questions during the show, you know, make sure you just put them in the comments. We'll try to address them as you can. Two of the best questions each week we're going to take, and we're going to try to answer those, um, you know, in the next episode, basically. So just uh, keep that in mind, and that way we, because uh, a lot of people will ask, you know, really good questions in the comments, and not everyone gets to see those questions and those answers because not everyone participates in the comments. So that's what we decided to do going here forward. Um, now. If you've never seen Honor of Kings, the, the whole purpose of this is that we're looking at the, the books that have been removed from the American canon of 66. And we're looking at these to test them and to make sure that, that we can line up the, the themes introduced, the characters, the theology, the, excuse me, the theology that's being taught 
we can line that up with the American Canon 66, and we can try to discern whether or not these books were taken out for good reasons or bad reasons, right? Whether they were taken out because they were they didn't match up, that would be a good reason. But if it's taken out because it does match up and it gives us more insight and it makes it more clear, then that would be a nefarious reason possibly that, <laughs> that these books were taken out and removed. And then this canon of 66 was pushed as the only scriptures there are when in fact there's a ton of other books out there and many of those books used to be in the collection of scriptures we we call the Bible. So that's what we're doing. We're looking at these other passages. We're comparing them. And they have a lot of interesting things to say. Um, and currently we're in the Book of Enoch. So thanks for joining us, guys. Hey, Ken, do you want to start out reading chapter 9? Yeah, absolutely, man. And uh, before I do, I just want to say I concur with that. I, I'm, I'm coming more and more convinced that nefarious reasons for removing a lot of these books um, – are because they just contain so many answers that um, you know the, the American Canon I sixty six just either are a little obscure about or just are completely um, you know they don't they don't mention anything about it. So I'm becoming more and more convinced that these books, which Enoch says at the beginning of this specific book, is going to be useful for the generation in the latter days. I'm of the opinion that we're in and around the latter day period. So it would just make sense that as this manifests, the, these books are going to be very important for those of us who want to, you know, try to sift through the deception in these latter days. And I think they're becoming more and more um, recognized by people, which is amazing. And uh, yeah, we definitely need to test them. And, and the uh, chapters that we're going to be testing in this, uh, excuse me, episode are, going to be interesting as well. So I'll start reading here, Sean. Sounds good, man. All right, we're going to start with Enoch chapter 9, guys. Yep. And then Michael, Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel looked down from heaven and saw much blood being shed upon the earth and all lawlessness being wrought upon the earth. And they said one to another, The earth made without inhabitant cries the voice of their crying up to the gates of heaven. And now to you, the holy ones of heaven, the souls of men make their suit, saying, Bring our cause before the Most High. And they said to the Lord of the ages, Lord of lords, God of gods, King of kings, God of the ages, the throne of your glory stands unto all the generations of the ages, in your name holy and glorious and blessed unto all the ages. You have made all things, and power over all things have you, and all things are naked and open in your sight. And you see all things, and nothing can hide itself from you. You see what Azazel has done, who has taught all unrighteousness on earth, and revealed the eternal secrets which were preserved in heaven, which men were striving to learn. And Samyaza, to whom you have given authority to bear rule over his associates. And they have gone to the daughters of men upon the earth, and have slept with the women, and have defiled themselves, and revealed to them all kinds of sins. And the women have born giants and the whole earth has thereby been filled with blood and unrighteousness and now behold the souls of those who have died are crying and making their suit to the gates of heaven and their lamentations have ascended and cannot cease because of the lawless deeds which are wrought on the earth and you know all things before they come to pass and you see all things and you do suffer them and you do not say to us what we are to do to them in regard to these so yes, we have these 
these angels who are concerned about mankind now. They're they're not part of the group of the two hundred that we were talking about last episode who had you know nefarious agendas. Um, these are ones who want us to um, you know thrive in the earth and to be in relationship and covenant with Yahweh. And so they're concerned, and they're bringing their uh, the petitions that they're hearing. Interestingly enough, from souls of men who have been part of the corruption in the earth, who have you know, it says in, in the previous chapter that all the corruption that was taking place, these people were being destroyed. They're utterly being destroyed, and there was just uncleanness being taught and and being practiced, and it, the earth, whole earth was being corrupted. And so they're they're presenting all these things before Yahweh. I think it's fascinating to see in verse one, we get um, that the four angels are mentioned, you know, looking down from heaven and seeing the lawlessness. And part of their conversation in verse two says they said to one another, the earth is made without inhabitant cries the voice of their crying up to the gates of heaven. And verse three says, and now to you, the holy ones of heaven, the souls of men are making their suits, bring our cause before the most high. And so it's interesting that the souls of men are making suits in this <laughs> in this conversation. Yeah, we only see that in American Canon of sixty six in the Book of Revelation, chapter six. I believe it's verses um, seven through eleven or something like that, and where it's talking about the you know the souls that are crying out for vengeance, saying, "When will you avenge our blood?" And uh, we're we're actually going to read more about that concept in Enoch twenty two as well. But this is the first introduction to that idea in chapter 9 of Enoch, where we get these ideas of souls um, who are being affected by lawlessness on the earth and bloodshed, meaning they're dead, right? And this yeah. is what Enoch 22 expounds upon, that these are souls that have been killed because of lawlessness and that they're making suits to, um, to anyone that will hear, basically, is the way it's coming across. But it's also the angels are saying, look, they're, we're hearing their cry and they want us to bring it to the Most High, right? Yeah. Do we pray to angels? No. I just want to make that clear. No, we don't pray to angels. And then I don't think that's what's happening here either. I'm just saying that these guys, because the angels are, as we're going to read in later chapters, um, I think it's chapter 20, it actually gives us these four guys, it gives us their job duties, you know, and explains what they're in charge over. And so, um, you know, just these are ministering angels, guys. So they're they're the whole purpose of them is to be involved in the affairs of men, which means you know, they're going to have they're going to have uh, job types that pertain to, you know, certain things. Right now, do they are they God? No, of course not. They're angels. Are they the son of man? Are they the Messiah? Of course not. They're angels. I just want to make sure people don't get confused by this. Um, but because, again, like I said at the beginning of last episode, you know, this is just the first 10 chapters of Enoch. We're, we're laying out. It's introducing a whole bunch of ideas. That's going to explain itself later. So stick with us. Okay, guys. And this is one of those ideas. It may seem confusing at first. This is not advocating prayer to angels at all. This is something we also see in the book of Revelation that's happening about souls making suit and their and their prayers being brought before the most high. We see that in Revelation chapter five as well. Um, about the prayers of the saints in a big bowl being brought before the Father, the Almighty. So uh, this is nothing out of order here. I just don't want people to get confused, but this particular part. This particular concept will be expounded upon in later chapters in Enoch. Yeah, and I want to just quickly expound upon that idea too, Sean. I agree. It's uh, you know the angels have different roles and job duties, and one of them 
is um, that they're ministering spirits for us. And as you had mentioned, uh, um, I can't remember which particular angel it is, but he is over the supplications and petitions of men, prayers, right? So when it says that these souls were crying out and up to the gates of heaven, I don't think that's just fanciful poetic language. I think like literally these, these cries were reaching to the heavens, the gates of heaven, and they, they do get presented before Yahweh. And it's not, um, it's not an isolated uh, concept just in Enoch. I mean, we have in Genesis 4 when Cain kills Abel, you know, he says, what have you done? Yahweh says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I mean, I believe that's a reference to, to Cain's soul in Sheol. And that's further backed up in uh, Jasher chapter 1 where it says, uh, you know, and Cain dissembled and said, I do not know why am I my brother's keeper, whom I my brother's keeper. And the Lord said to him, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries unto me from the ground where you've slain him. And then I've used, as you mentioned, in Revelation 6, 9 to 10, it says, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is something that's uh, also mentioned in the book Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So even in the days of the writer of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, um, either way, in the first century, Abel's voice is still speaking during that time. I, want, I think we should take that literally, that he's in Sheol speaking before Yahweh, you know, basically saying, like, how long, O Lord? Like, when are you going to avenge us? I and mean, as you mentioned, Sean, Revelation, or um, Enoch chapter 22 mentions when, when Enoch essentially goes to Sheol and is shown all the compartments, but then we have Abel there doing the same thing, you know, petitioning before him, um, you know. So it's a concept that is in our canonized scriptures and, um is elaborated in some of these extra biblical books talking about how souls do cry from Sheol wanting to be avenged because of what's, you know, what they had gone through on the earth, all the corruption and the blood being spilt and, and the lawlessness. And, uh, and, you know, I believe that people still do that today in, in, in Sheol and on, all the way until the day of the Lord when Yahweh actually does, you know, the, the consummation of the ages do take place and he does avenge them. Yeah. It's, it's just a, it's a very interesting thing, and we, like I said, we're going to explore it much more in later chapters and break it down for folks so that there's no confusion, um, because these souls are being, you know, maintained, if you will, outside of their body, awaiting the day of judgment or awaiting the resurrection, and um, and they're not they're not hanging out in eternal burning. The ones that are not getting resurrected, the ones that are going to be judged, they're not just hanging out in eternal burning. That's so, right. And it's it's interesting, man. The more the more you know, I read over this chapter here, as you had mentioned, it's it, it's not like it went directly. These petitions didn't go directly to Yahweh. It's the angels are kind of you know gathering in a group here, being like, all right, guys, like this is what's going on here. We gotta we gotta bring this before Yahweh. And uh, <laughs> you know, it's not like Yahweh didn't know because then they start when they do present it to him, they start with Lord of Lords, God of Gods, King of Kings. You made everything. Blah 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 blah. Obviously, he knows what's going on. It's almost like he wants. His ministering spirits to do their job like hey guys like i've given you roles i've given you these things to do he waits for them they do it and they bring it to him and then and then he decides okay now we're going to do this right yeah so everyone has a part to play in this whole 
cosmological storyline. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Um, and because they do say in verse five that, you know, all things are naked and open in your sight. So yeah. they know that he sees it already, but it is their job to tell about it. That's why they're called watchers. They're watching. <laughs> it's, it's part of their job function. And so I think it's interesting, though, here in verse six, where it talks about um, thou sees what Azazel has done, who has taught all unrighteousness on earth and revealed the eternal secrets, which were preserved in heaven, which men were striving to learn. And Samyaza, to whom you have given authority to bear rule over his associates. So it's almost like it differentiates that Azazel is not an associate of Samyaza. Yes, they're both angels. They both rebelled. They're both in the mix. But as far as being like, it's almost saying that Azazel is not under the authority of Samyaza, which is kind of an interesting dichotomy there. You yeah. know, both being uh, spoken of separately. And um, yeah, I just think it's interesting. Yeah, there's a bit of a binary thing going on there between the two characters, you know. Um, and of course, it reiterates what we talked about last time, you know, that that these uh, rebellious angels um, took daughters of men, slept with the women, and just clearly says it right here, defiled themselves. What's interesting, though, is to talk about the idea of, of sleeping with a woman, but then the next statement says, and defiled themselves. Well, because these were the holy ones of heaven, right? So to sleep with a woman means that you have now engaged in blood. Yeah, you so, defiled uh, yourself, yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, um, this is something. Now, something... So Sean, sorry, just to interject real quick, and maybe this is where you're going to, is like, so these ones, these specific groups of angels here, the ones that defile themselves with women, um, a specific sin that Azazel didn't take part in, um, is this why we see potentially through like the book of Job and other uh, other passages where, you know, we have Satan, the Satan, the adversary, the Job, um, you know, Azazel, potentially, if he is the devil, um, he's able to go to, to like to the, above the firmament and stuff like that and come back down on the earth. And whereas these other ones aren't because they're now considered defiled and unable to go into that heavenly place where reality resides, where there's only righteousness and holiness. Yeah, you're exactly right. You said it better than I was about to. Oh. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. That's, that was the idea is that, that this could exactly be why Azazel still runs to and fro. And even in Job 1, when the angels present themselves to him, which I think is interesting, by the way, because if they are male members, um, excuse me, male angels with male members and literally, you know, very similar to the, the anatomy of a man, then in the law, the men were supposed to present themselves periodically to the father, right, to the temple. Yeah. And so this could be, you know, this is something my wife and I kind of speculated about um, a few Sabbaths back where we were reading in the law and we we're like, oh, the the male child is supposed to be presented uh, every so often to the Lord. And like, is that what's going on in Job 1 and 2 where these angels came before the Father? Hmm. They came to present themselves before the Father. That's, it's it's like the exact same verbiage of what we read in the law for that. And so since we know the angels follow the law in heaven too. And they, they take part in the feast days, correct? As you believe is expounded upon? Well, yeah. they absolutely do. And so that's why Azazel came with them. He's doing the law. So this, this, this is a little tricky yeah. here, right? <laughs> it gets a little sticky because if yeah. people don't understand what's going on, then they don't understand how God judges people. And they don't understand how this Azazel cat, who Enoch calls Satan later on, that, you know, if he's really good at knowing the law, he knows how to get around it. He knows just enough to obey, to not get, you know, somehow kicked out of access to certain places, or he knows just enough to suggest 
to get other people to do sim, but he doesn't actually do it himself. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So we're just seeing that these little inklings that uh, he did teach unrighteousness, as this verse 6 says, and he did teach these eternal secrets. Um, but the men were already striving to learn it, it says, right? So they were willing. He didn't force it upon them. Yeah, that's an interesting little detail to note. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So you know what I envision in my head? And this is complete conjecture. This is just, I just want blanket disclaimer here, guys. This is just me conjecturing upon, you know, how this would practically play out. Because uh, I'm, I'm a guy who's an aspiring author and a novelist. And so when I, when I think about, when I read these brief summaries, I always think about, like, what does that look like if, in reality? Like, how are you going to write that? How would you express that to where it seems plausible? And, I, and it says that he taught them eternal secrets and unrighteousness, but men were striving to learn it already. So, okay. So the way I view it is just like he, he does with everything else, he drops the suggestion, you want to learn it now. So he doesn't just sit there and grab your hands and show you how to make shields and breastplates and weapons and antimony. He just does it in front of you and you watch. And suddenly he hasn't done anything for you. He may not even give you, maybe he's making a sword in front of you. He doesn't even give it to you, but he just, he just lets you watch him do it. Does that make sense? So oh, yeah, absolutely. You're, still, you're still quote unquote teaching them. They're still watching you. Yeah. Striving to learn it. He's not directly, well, directly forcing it upon them. Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting thought for sure. Um, I had mentioned the last episode that uh, one of the other extra biblical books, it mentions that, Azazel was tempting Eve just by saying like, you know, if you eat from this tree, you're going to learn the things that we all know. And, and Yahweh is actually holding back this knowledge from you on purpose because he doesn't want you to know these things. Like, and he was, he was just putting it in, his, in her ear, right? And she was like, oh, okay, yeah, that actually, I want to know these things. And so he didn't force her into anything. She yeah. made the decision, right? So that would make sense with what you're just saying here about everything that he was making and, and men were trying to learn these things on top of that. So it's not like he was forcing it upon them. It was, you know, it was a, <laughs> a two way street type thing. Yeah. Well, it just reminds me of the old, you know, it's the reverse psychology, right? You just tell someone yeah. now you, you don't, you wouldn't want to know about that. And then guess what? Yeah. Now all they want to know about, you know what I mean? And they won't let it go. And then you're like, well, yeah. don't make me tell. I don't, I don't even want to tell you about that. You know what I mean? And now that they want you to tell them about that, and then they just beg you, beg you, until you finally tell them, and then and then they hurt themselves, and you're like, look, hey, I, I didn't want to tell you about that. <laughs> it's it's yeah. just it's like the ultimate, you know. I'm not I'm not responsible. I didn't want to tell you, you know. Um, I'm just I'm just saying there's other things out there for you to know, but I don't want to tell you what they are because you're gonna hurt yourself. You know, I'm gonna wash my hands clean of this. And this is on you, but I will give you what you want if it's what you really want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right on, man. It's very interesting. Uh, very interesting. And of course, giants are mentioned again, just like the last couple chapters, and it's immediately after the ideas of these rebellious angels sleeping with women. So uh, we get more validation to that concept. And then, of course, in verse 10, picks up again about the souls uh, who have died and are crying and making suit to the gates of heaven. Their limitations have ascended and cannot cease because of the lawless deeds which are wrought on the earth. Um, and so, and then they just reiterate that the Father already knows these things. I, I think it's a fascinating chapter because here we have angels talking to God. That's what we're getting, man. Yeah. And they're telling, they're they're giving him his notes. Hey, you know, Azazel, Samyaz, his boys, they all, they're doing some bad things. There's giants on the earth. Man 
kind is being oppressed and lawlessness. They're dying. Their souls are now making suit from Sheol. Like, you know, they're just, they're giving them the skinny. They're bringing forth their reports to God. You know, yeah. it's a yeah. fascinating scene right here. Yeah. So, anything else you want to add to this one? No, that's pretty much it, man. I think we can go on to the next chapter here. Do you want me to read it? Chapter 10. Chapter 10 is a little longer. Um, and it's uh, because we're going to get to see the response. And that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, Yahweh's um, response is, is interesting. Yeah. yeah, it really is. I'm going to start out real quick. It says, chapter 10 of Enoch says, Then said the Most High, the Holy and Great One spoke, and said, Uriel to the son of Lamech, and said to him, Go to Noah, tell him my, in my name, hide yourself, and reveal to him the end that is approaching, that the whole earth will be destroyed, and a deluge is about to come upon the whole earth, and will destroy all that is on it. And now instruct him that he may escape, and his seed may be preserved for all the generations of the world. And Ken, so this is what I was talking about, right? Um, the angels come up and they're like, "Hey, there's some bad stuff going on. We might need to handle this." And the next response from from the audit, okay, <laughs> they're like, "No, wait, wait, it's um, okay." So I just think it's fascinating. I'll just keep reading here. Verse three, it says, "And now instruct him that he may escape, and his seed may be preserved for all the generations of the world." And again, the Lord said to Raphael, uh, "Bind Azazel hand and foot, cast him in the darkness, make an opening in the desert which is in Duduel." And cast him therein. Place upon him rough and jagged rocks and cover him with darkness. Let him abide there forever and cover his face that he may not see light. And on that day of the great judgment, he shall be cast in the fire and heal the earth with the angels have corrupted. And proclaim the healing of the earth that they may heal the plague and that all the children of the men may not perish through all the secret things that the watchers have disclosed and have taught their sons. So I just want to stop real quick because we've got... Um, the pronouncement of Azazel's punishment, and this is where I've theorized that, you know, again, remember, like I said in the last couple episodes, we're just reading the first 10 chapters of Enoch here, and in, we're getting a lot of things expressed to us that's going to later expound upon. We're going to get a lot more information. Some of this stuff's going to be repeated and expounded upon, and then some of this, we're going to get the chronological conclusions to these ideas as well. Um, now, this is where I would suggest this announcement of Azazel being punished is the sentence that has gone forth, but it hasn't actually been carried out yet, and we're going to see this later on. This is why we see all through the canon of 66, this is as a character, is the Satan character running around doing mischief and causing problems. And uh, because, and then the moment that we do see him thrown in the earth with rough rocks thrown on him is at the return of the Messiah in Revelation 20, verse 1, when Michael binds him with the chain. Chains we're going to read about that are created later, in the book of Enoch, chapter 54, I believe. Um, and that's where we're going to see this actual implement, the actual enacting or the actual moment where he's taken, physically taken, and put into the earth and covered over. Um, I am contending that it, we don't actually see the fulfillment of that until Revelation chapter 20 at the return of Messiah. Um, yeah. The announcement of it here. Sean, real quick. Um, you said Michael does that, correct? In Revelation? It does say that. Michael does in Revelation, but Enoch mentions the other three guys are also making chains and grabbing angels and uh, grabbing people too. Azazel and his hosts. But I'm just, well, I guess what I'm asking is here in verse four, it says, and again, the Lord said to Raphael, bind Azazel. Now, is, is he just, is this just a, a generalized 
statement to Raphael, even though it might not be Raphael binding Azazel, because it reads almost as if Raphael is in charge of binding Azazel, whereas in Revelation, we're told Michael does it, right? Yeah, well, just... Is there a discrepancy there at all, I think? Absolutely. But also further up, it talks about Uriel. Um, he sent Uriel to Lamech. Um, uh, and I'm just saying, he's these four guys that were introduced in Chapter 9, they seem to kind of be the, the leaders of Watchers. Yeah, I agree with that, yeah. Right, they can what we would re generically refer to as archangels, right? So these are the, uh, and of course, you know, it does talk to all four of them. I think in in throughout this conversation, if I'm not right, or just three of them: Uriel, Raphael, and then in verse eleven, talks to Michael to go bind some Yaza, um, at the appointed time, and it gives the conditions of those appointed times. Yeah, I think where I sorry where I struggled with. Um, Azazel being, you know, the Satan, the, the main adversary was, um, well, because of this chapter um, and the, the placement of when this judgment actually um, transpires. And another thing about that was that he tells Raphael to bind Azazel. It seems, it reads as if it's Raphael to bind Azazel, whereas in Revelation, it's Michael doing it, right? So I, that's that was one of the sticking points for me to like, okay, is Azazel the Satan here or not? It sounds very similar. Yeah. It seems like it's an immediate judgment here, and Raphael is the one that has to, to, to you know, to do this. And but in Revelation, we're refer, you know, we see Michael doing it. So is there is this two different things, or is this potentially the same thing? Am I not understanding this correctly? But that's well, kind of where I was. Yeah, I think he's speaking all because remember in the context of chapter nine is all four of them go before the Almighty to bring, you know, to bring up what's going on. Yeah. So he's kind of speaking all four of them, but let me just going to read real quick from Enoch chapter fifty-four, where we get more, um, we get more explanation of this concept that's being talked about. Um, it's just a few short verses. It says, "I looked and turned to another part of the earth and saw a deep valley with burning fire. They brought the kings and the mighty and began to cast them in this deep valley. And there, my eyes saw that how they made for these made for these kings their instruments, iron chains of immeasurable weight. And I asked the angel of peace who went with me, saying." For whom are these chains being prepared? And he said to me, these are being prepared for the hosts of the Zazel, so that they may take them and cast them into the abyss of complete condemnation. They shall cover their jaws with rough stones, as the Lord of Spirits commanded. And Michael and Gabriel and Raphael and Phanuel shall take hold of them on that great day and cast them on that day into the burning furnace, that the Lord of Spirits may take vengeance on them for their unrighteousness and becoming subject to Satan and leading astray those who dwell on the earth. So... So yes, yeah, it's it's like these guys are all. Of course, Gabriel and Fanuel is mentioned here, and Uriel's not in this one in this particular idea. But um, but yeah, it's just talking about if none none other. I mean, Michael and Raphael are both mentioned in this passage. Yeah. Um, and you know, both taking hold of not only the hosts of Azazel, but also Azazel himself, because this is the you know the return of Messiah, the summation of all this. Um, and that's why these chains were being made. And this is even referencing the, 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 what the Lord of Spirits commanded, the proclamation that went forth in chapter 10 that we're just reading about. Yeah, I have to agree, man. I have to. That's a, pretty yeah, um, it's a convincing argument that this is, you know, <laughs> this is the main adversary, Azazel, and that he's, he is the roaming lion out to devour right now, currently. He is the one that was able to go in the book of Job to the heaven. Um, potentially on an appointed day or a time or something like that. And he's still in the earth and hasn't received that first part of his judgment yet. I think it's, I think it makes sense. 
And also, you know, if we really, I didn't think about this, but if we really look, I wonder if um, this is Raphael is over the spirits of men in chapter 20. And Michael is over the best part of mankind and over chaos. Um, as far as watching over and taking notes, I'm guessing is what this is all about. Um, so it's just interesting uh, that these guys, for whatever reason, are mentioned on both occasions, Michael and Raphael, and they're both inter they're both mentioned to interact with the Zazel. Who knows? Maybe they both have to grab him. Maybe you know. Yeah, maybe. Um, well, what, what what stood out to me as kind of interesting is it, it sounds like there's a giant paperweight that's going on these angels. What is it about their jaws that need to be held in by jagged rocks? Like what, that, <laughs> you know what I mean? How can a physical object hold a spiritual object and well, in particular by a jaw? Like, I mean, it's that, I mean, yes, they have, they are corporeal, but like, what do you think? Yeah. I think it would also depend on how you define a spiritual body. Scripture defines a spiritual body for us as one that can move like the wind, right? It can move in, in and out of rooms. Um, it can fly. Uh, it, it has apparently more capability than this body that we are currently existing in. One, one's called, you know, scripture calls our body presently a body of corruption. Yeah. Uh, but once we put on this spiritual body that has apparently different capabilities. So but, there must be something to the properties of the jagged rocks that is kind of like uh, Thor's hammer in a way, you know? Well, I was going <laughs> to it could be the chains. It could be the properties of the chains that are met that can actually, you know, keep the body from moving out of the chains. Yeah. Um, I don't know what that what that looks like or what that is, but it's very interesting that in all occasions, both Enoch 10, Enoch 54, and Revelation 20, they have a chain with them. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're, you're like, what What would that do to a guy who can walk through walls? Like, that shouldn't matter. But they're wrapped in chains and thrown in the ground. So they, they're clearly something special here. Something's going on. Yeah. Yeah, interesting, man. So it makes sense that um, if Azazel knows that his his the first part of his judgment is coming up, he's you know, we're told that he ramps things up in the earth, right? He yeah. knows that his time is short and he's starting to freak out. And so at Revelation twelve seventeen, and there's there's some other things that are happening there. I personally, without going into a full on, you know, discourse on Revelation twelve, I, I just feel like it's a summary of of events over many, many years over a span of time. And so the moment where we see he persecutes those who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus in verse 17, and that he knows his time is short, he's filled with wrath and fury, right, um, is because uh, something specific happened that leads to the 42 months of the reign of Apollyon. He's about to come out. The devil's furious um, that there's a lot of stuff happening in the last 42 months and that there is um, – yeah, I think that that's why the devil's furious. He, he's, he's been sentenced a long time ago, and he knows this day is happening. And so when it finally starts to get close, he just, you know, he goes full bore, right? Yeah. And to me, that's where he's fulfilling the punishment that's announced for him is because he goes out and he's, he's persecuting people like never before. So um, to the point where he's given his authority to the beast and the image of the beast, and they're going around killing people. So it's very interesting. Very, yeah. All right, well, hey, we got verse you know, 18. You know that, uh, there's something interesting. And in, um, now I'm saying this just as a, a simple caveat 
folks, for everyone watching along. Um, the next, the next thing I'm about to say, I, I just want to thoroughly just put a disclaimer on there that we, in no way possible, do we ever want to encourage people to um, to study any occultic books at all. Okay, and that's why we're actually testing these books to make sure they line up with the truth of sound doctrine of scripture. Um, so there is an occultic book called the Book of the Dead. It's the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And supposedly, uh, I can't remember if it's in that book or if it's just one of the one of the legends of ancient Egypt, was that Ra was this was the character in ancient Egypt that was considered to be Satan. That so from the Hebrew people they called Ra Satan, and Osiris was the was the Nimrod character. And so in ancient Egyptian lore, Osiris was the engrafted son of Ra, and so they shared authority with each, with each other which is what I've always contended we see in Revelation 13 between Satan the dragon and the return of Apollyon, which is Nimrod, which is Osiris. Um, and that's why he shares the authority of the dragon fully and goes out and does what he does, because that's, that's an agreement they've already set up a long time ago. <laughs> so, um, but there's an interesting caveat in their ancient legends is that there was the eye, everyone's always seen the eye of Osiris and the eye of Horus or the eye of raw it's kind of attributed to all i think the eye of horse actually is the is the right side and the eye of osiris and raw is the left side either way the eye and its symbolism is always attributed to the authority and the power and the overlooking of raw right so Azazel's a watcher we got an eye who looks right the all-seeing eye who's watching okay so all this symbolism lines up here but the point is there's an ancient story how at one point Ra released the eye. And this is the, the terminology gets really interesting because it talks about how he released the eye of Ra and it went around killing people and he had to pull it back because people started complaining. It got crazy. It got out of hand. It was massacring people in Egypt. And so he had to pull the eye of Ra back. And that reminds me of Revelation chapter 13 where it talks about how the image of the beast was given the breath of life was given, you know, created, came alive, and it went around forcing people to worship the beast or be killed. And it was killing people. So I, I don't know if it's the same thing as what was in the past, but I think it's a very interesting parallel. And it's just really hard to find any information on that because, you know, that's ancient Egypt and so unreliable. It's not like scripture, right, where we can have multiple texts to line up and we, we can see things that teach the, the theology of God so we know that it's divine scripture. Uh, you know, I do not, I do not claim anything about the Egyptian Book of the Dead to be divine from God. It's the occultic Bible, in my opinion, or the first one, I should say, uh, the first occultic Bible, in my opinion. And I don't, I don't suggest anyone read it. I just think that um, it's an interesting parallel from that era that we see something very similar happen in Revelation associated with this character Azazel, whom I, I believe is Satan. Hmm. So, very That's fascinating, man. Yeah. Fascinating. Right on. So I think we were in a uh, verse eight, and this is where it gets really interesting. In verse eight, because Azazel gets the brunt of all blame. All right. So verse eight says, "And the whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel." So to him, ascribe all sin, and that's a huge statement. <laughs> Very, and it's one that puzzled me when I came across that for several years when I first started reading the Book of Enoch. I was like, "That is an, an interesting attribute to be ascribed to." You know, all sin is ascribed to this one guy, Azazel. I was like, well, what about Satan? What about the devil, the main adversary? What about him? Right? right? He leads the whole world 
away from you know Yahweh's kingdom essentially. And it's like, why wouldn't why wouldn't that be ascribed to him? What is it about this Azazel guy? But the more we peel back the layers of Enoch and understand the context and the time qualifiers of who Azazel is, it makes perfect sense that this is who we're talking about, Satan, the, the main adversary, and that all sin being ascribed to him is appropriate. It's very appropriate. And then it makes more sense in Leviticus 16 with, with the, yep. the, the whole atonement thing and you know the, the scapegoat all yeah. singling, laying onto him and then going out into the desert as a, you know, symbolism for what's to come type thing. Yeah. Is it a coincidence that the Hebrew word for scapegoat is the word Azazel? No, I don't believe so, buddy. <laughs> it's crazy, right? <laughs> it's crazy that, um, that, you know, we have this idea that all sin is ascribed to him. So in Leviticus 16 in the law, the idea there was they, you know, the pre, they wouldn't even kill the scapegoat, the Azazel goat. They wouldn't kill him. The other sacrifice that was brought, they killed that one, right? But the Azazel goat, they confessed their sins over it, and they released it out into the wilderness. Um, and I think that's fascinating because they're putting their, their sin on him and pushing him out into the wilderness. Um, and that's very similar to what we see, you know, um, that he's – now there's even further – apparently there's even further speculation that he was thrown off a cliff somewhere. It was actually corralled to a cliff and thrown off. But I think that's fascinating that uh, we have the same symbolism here in the pronouncement of judgment for Azazel. All sin is ascribed to him, and he's going to be taken to uh, what you know, put in put in a hole in the ground, in right? a desert, in a wilderness. In yeah. yeah, in the desert. Yeah. So it's like uh, all the same components are here, and uh, and that's part of the judgment for him. And when he's gone, sin is gone, and there's peace on the earth, and the Messiah is reigning for a thousand years. Yeah, amazing foreshadowing. Right, all that symbolism is already there in the law. That's just amazing. Mm -hmm. Really amazing. So verse 9 says, And to Gabriel said the Lord, Proceed against the bat. The, uh, okay, we'll just go ahead. And <laughs> we'll bleep this one out. Yeah, we'll bleep it out. Um, and to Gabriel said the Lord, Proceed against the bastards and the reprobates and against the children of fornication and destroy the children of fornication and the children of the watchers from amongst men um, and cause them to go forth. Send them one against the other that they may destroy each other in battle. For length of days shall they not have, and no request that they, their fathers, make of you shall be granted unto their fathers on their behalf. For they hope to live an eternal life, and that each one of them will live 500 years. And the Lord said to Michael, Go bind Samyaza and his associates, who have united themselves with women, so as to have defiled themselves with them in all their uncleanness. Okay, i got to stop real quick, because there's, there's so much in this chapter. Um, yeah. Verse 9, you know, the father tells Gabriel, um, you know, these watchers, uh, now we're going to address their offspring and that they're not going to live forever. They're only going to live 500 years and that you're not going to grant any requests made by their fathers, the other watchers, the rebellious angels. So and then he goes, tells them they try, don't they? They, they do, do try. try. We're going to find out when they do try and all the details surrounding that. <laughs> and, and apparently they cry when they're told no, which is yeah. what? Like that talk about, you know, bringing it into a reality of, uh, of, you know, personalization of character. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this, these guys have real emotions. Angels have real emotions like us, like real entities like we are, you know? Um, they're not just blind robots doing the father's will. They have choice, they have free will. And they suffer the consequences emotionally of those choices. And uh, here we have verse 11, though. The Lord tells Michael to go bind Samyaza, his associates, 
who deny themselves as women. And this is what I was saying, Ken. This is another distinction between Azazel and Samyaza. So in, it, it deals with Samyaza, then it goes and deals with the Watchers and their offspring, and then it specifically focuses on Samyaza and his associates, the other Watchers that are listed off. And again, specifically, without including Azazel, tells them how they were united themselves with women. So it's very, very plausible to theorize that Azazel did not take a wife. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I never, I never thought that when reading this in context either, that he was... Um, associated with the mystery of Genesis 6, just that he was a potential, you know, uh, rebellious dissenter that kind of maybe coached them into making the decisions that they did. But he, yeah, he wasn't part of the, the mystery. That's pretty wild. And, so, and when they're sons of slain one another, this is verse 12, guys. When they're sons of slain one another, talking about the, the offspring of the watchers, just to talk about the giants, um, they've seen the destruction of their beloved ones. Bind them fast for the 70 generations in the valleys of the earth till the day of their judgment and of their consummation, till the judgment that is forever and ever is consummated. So, Ken, this is the big controversial verse. Yeah, this is interesting. Lots of theories surrounding this verse. This is the one, man. This is the Yeah, one. what's, well, one that I've heard of that is very fascinating, but I think when you take into, you know, um, when you look at the surrounding context here that it doesn't quite work, but it's fascinating is that during this specific time that this judgment was, you know, rendered on these, on these, uh, angels, 70 generations, you know, place them in the earth for 70 generations. And if we think that a generation is around 70 to 80 years, according to the scriptures, that's about 4,900 years or so. Right. And so the theory is that in the beginning of the 20th century, could these things have come out because we start, you know, into the industrial age and we're no longer on, you know, horse and buggy anymore. Or we're flying around and we've got these crazy weaponry, all this, you know, the, the theories are fascinating, but it's contingent upon, you know, what, when the specific judgment was along the timeline, as well as, well, you have to take into account that it says they're to stay there and remain there until the great judgment. Right. So that doesn't say they're going to be released for a small time and then put back in as, you know, as Azel or Satan is Satan is bound for a thousand years released. And then, and then he's, you know, further judged with the ultimate judgment, but it doesn't say that about the other angels at all. It just says that to remain there until the day of judgment, which is the last possible, you know, fullness of the judgment. That's right. And also in, in the entirety of the book of revelation, we see Satan mentioned multiple times. We see, um, out of the abyss and out of the pit in Revelation chapter 9, Apollyon returns with 200 million associates of Apollyon. Um, and people have asked me, they, they continue to ask me, well, do you think that's the return of the fallen angels? I'm like, guys, there was only 200 of them. There's not 200. And they're not procreating in the abyss. <laughs> <laughs> they're not. So, like, you know, the, of course, so we read on later about who these unclean spirits are that come up with them. I mean, these are these Nephilim spirits, that's where they come from, is these these giants whom were created during the days of Noah and possibly afterwards. Their, their, their spirits are called unclean, um, meaning that they're, they're different. They're not like the spirits of men, so they don't exactly behave in Sheol exactly the same way. And apparently, according to the Book of Jubilees, um, one-tenth of, of all the spirits of the giants that were killed in the flood, one-tenth of those spirits remained on the earth under the authority of Azazel to 
for the purposes we see them in the gospel, where they were oppressing people, tormenting people, causing sickness and disease. And Noah had to deal with them as well. And he prayed about them and got a, a response to them and was given a book of medicines to counteract the diseases they caused. Jesus was just casting them out left and right. Right. We even know the famous story about Legion asking Jesus, don't send us to the pit. And in another version, I think it's in the, in the version in Luke, they asked Jesus, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? Yeah. Like, they're actually taunting the son of man. You know what I mean? Like, are you going to break the law? Because the, the appointed time is not here yet. So yeah. I think it's fascinating that even these unclean spirits know the timeline of judgment that's coming. And they're intentionally were let uh, one tenth of them, I should say. So that who knows how many there originally were to begin with, but one tenth of them were intentionally let out. And it is the 200 million that come up the other nine tenths yeah. with these crazy chimera style bodies, which the more we study chimeras, we know they're just host bodies um, that are created for these spirits to inhabit. And that's where like, the, is that the one tenth? If that's true, what are we talking about? 20 billion to, what, what is that? Or two, two billion, right? It's a lot. <laughs> it's a large number. It would be the full 100% if just one-tenth is 200 million, right? I mean, that's insane. Um, and that's where you have mathematicians that have always um, tried to figure out the growth rate of people before the flood to determine a possibility of, of population count before the flood. And I've heard, Ken, I've heard numbers as high as 17 billion from mathematician, like, you know, people that claim, you know, if this, you know, this, these many years, 1600 years to procreate without, um, you know, with that, with an abundance of food source, you know, without a lot of problems uh, with pure genetics, and then they're all having multiple babies, you know, um, they're all having like nine or 10 kids that you could easily get up to the billions before the flood happened. And yeah. so um, it's very interesting, very interesting stuff. Absolutely. What just before we move on from that, you'd said that the one tenth is two hundred million. Isn't it the nine tenths? No, no, that's what I'm saying. There's, um, I, I don't know. That's what I'm getting at. I don't yeah. know. Because if, well, if we assume that the one tenth that waits for the great day of judgment, are, they're still roaming. They're not included in the two hundred million that come out of the pit, right? Because the two hundred like. That's the question is, can they come out of the pit? Um, you know, the nine tenths that were sent to the pit to await the great day of judgment, can they come out? I don't know. So the the two, the one tenth of the unclean spirits that were left to be the tormenting demons that we see on the earth today that we deal with, do they do they have the ability to traverse, so to speak, back and forth from the pit under the authority of Azazel? right um to do this and we know the apollyon cat who's the king over them is the return of nimrod who's under the authority of azazel does that make sense oh yeah for sure yeah so um that's where i'm saying i don't know if that's the big portion or the one-tenth portion but if it's the one-tenth portion then that means there was a lot of giants that lived before the flood that died with unclean spirits that were sent to you know to a holding cell to wait the great day which i believe is the end of revelation 20 versus i think it's like 11 through 15 where it talks about you know the great the great white throne judgment after the thousand years where there everything is brought up now and put before messiah and he judges everything small and great you know and so um all the the bad guys and as well as 
all the good guys that lived and died throughout the thousand years who would need the second resurrection. So, um, so that's it's interesting days ahead, Sean. We know that, you know, if we're going to take this literally where these, these chimeric demonic, potentially demonic entities that are coming out of the abyss with applying a Nimrod, it's going to look crazy on this earth. I mean, just because we have this understanding, like a naturalistic understanding of our world around us, that's what we're taught, right? We just think like this stuff is just, it's poetic. It's, it's, you know, it, it, you can't take this stuff literal. This is stuff, this stuff is literal, you know, and Hollywood knows this too, which is fascinating. I mean, I'd watched the justice league, the movie justice league not too long ago. I watched it several times actually. And it, it shows interesting chimeric things, you know, tormenting men and, and, you know, establishing a kingdom on the earth that's trying to spread out it's hollywood knows these things and that they're true and that they're literally coming on the earth and i, I believe that <laughs> it, it's stuff that's being shown to us like through entertainment yeah it's pretty it's yeah they know exactly what's happening and what's coming and that's why they're trying to prepare people so they won't be so afraid when it actually happens but um and speak speaking of Revelation chapter nine in relation to the giants, the disembodied spirits of the giants becoming these unclean spirits. Um, doesn't the apocalypse of Baruch, second Baruch, talk about the specters that come up on the earth? Yes, it does. You remember what chapter that's in? Um, it's the latter part of the book, but I don't, I'm not sure exactly. Like, it talks about the same event in Revelation nine. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. It is. All right, so uh, let's try to get through the rest of this chapter real quick. It says, um, verse 12, and when the, uh, I already read verse 12, um, verse 13, in those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire and to the torment and prison in which they shall be confined forever. All right, and so this is this talking about the, this this is the generation of the, the fallen angels, right? The rebellious watchers are led off to the abyss of fire and the torment and the prison in which they'll be confined forever. Now, to be fair, we talked about in the first episode about the the translation of this word in Enoch is very unique. It's the word olam, and it is talking about, you know, it, it's the technical word, and it's the word generically translated in English as forever. It's not the word for eternity or eternally. It's just the word used as forever. And in the English vernacular, we equate eternity and forever to be synonymous. But in the Hebrew, this word olam, which is being used as forever in these translations, is the actual word for antiquity or a long duration. Okay, so that's why we see it used of this concept to say these guys are taken somewhere to be forever, but then they're pulled out of that somewhere and judged later. So to us, that would contradict in our, in our English-speaking mind to think, oh, well, they're not there forever if they're taken out at some point, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. We're talking about a long duration of time. Yeah, and verse twelve here is hitting that home. I mean, they're they're judged for seventy generations under the earth till the day of their judgment of their consummation. Um, the judgment that is forever and ever is consummated. So that's, in my opinion, they're not getting out. They haven't gotten out, and when they do, they get placed into the lake of fire. Yeah. And, I, and you're right. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of folks that want to theorize because the last hundred and something years we've seen an explosion in innovation, industrialization, technology, transportation, uh, medical medical insight, all these things, right? Well, 
it doesn't have to be these other 100 190 plus angels getting back out we've got one still out who knows all the same stuff yeah <laughs> right absolutely and, oh and by the way revelation says he deceives the whole world yeah so, well, what's interesting, Sean, that I should probably ask you about what your opinion is on it is when Paul says that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, you know, above type thing. So he's using that in a pluralistic form, in my opinion. So during those days, if all these, you know, these 200 watcher angels are imprisoned during that time and, it, and it's only Azazel roaming around. What's he referring to? Are there other angels that could be potentially? No, or, or is he just classifying that that was them and that's who we were warring with because of all the stuff that they taught and but they're judged? Like, what do you think Paul's referring to there? Because it seems pluralistic. Yes, I think he's referring to Azazel and those who are under his command, the hosts of Azazel, which are these disembodied spirits of the Nephilim we read about in Jubilees 10, who are given under the authority of Azazel after the flood one-tenth of them anyway, to specifically oppress and cause havoc and chaos and strife and disease upon the earth among mankind. To you know, um, these, these were the guys that they're spiritual entities uh, because as Yeshua interacted with them and cast them out, and they clearly had some sort of territory they wanted to stay into. So these are, these are spiritual entities. They're under the authority of Azazel, and this is the new dichotomy post-flood. Is that it's not a whole bunch of, of angels it's just one and what's hilarious what's not hilarious but what's kind of weird about it is that if azazel didn't even take a wife he got authority over a bunch of his uh, a bunch of kids that weren't even his you know it's kind yeah, of weird he, he an adopted father yeah you know he's kind of took over you know because that's why we get this this language that keeps saying to these rebellious watchers these rebellious angels that your sons will be destroyed you know what I mean? Um, whom you love so much. And but they're put under the subjugation of someone that wasn't any of their fathers. Yeah. You know. Well, I'm I'm just wondering though, Sean. I mean, is it possible that I mean we, we learned about two hundred water angels falling upon artists onto Mount Hermon there, making their oaths and stuff and then doing what they did. Is it possible that there are other angels that rebelled from the beginning that didn't take part in the do that with two hundred watchers that still are out there doing things that they can legally do right now but aren't going to be judged until later on is that possible because i i agree that definitely mastema slash azazel is the one who's in charge of the disembodied nephilim spirits the one tenth that still exists right now but it's just the way that paul words it it seems like there's more angelic entities especially when you start getting into uh, the prince of persia being you know some sort of angelic entity that was over Persia and Michael and Gabriel had to like do their thing with him. And it doesn't sound like that would be Azazel. It was a different angel unless it's a demon, but it doesn't seem like that's a demon. So I'm just wondering is, could there be more angels that we don't know about specifically? I mean, yes, yeah. I, I acknowledge what you're saying. And if, if that instance in Daniel, um, that, uh, Gabriel was talking about being restrained by the Prince of Persia and then later talking about the Prince of Greece is going to show up. And if that's not Azazel and if that's not, a um another rebellious angel then that's a, some sort of wickedness in high places of like a you know principality that would be referred to as a demon how does that actually work out as far as them having to be able to restrain an angel i don't know are there other angels that could have 
mirrored the behavior of Azazel and participated in rebellion, but not to the point of being judged like these other watchers who took wives. Yes, they're just, I just don't see it told to us anywhere is the only problem. You know what I mean? The, yeah. only thing, the only thing I see that can be confusing for a lot of folks is the Greek translation of the word angel in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about, um, you know, Satan and a third of his angels um, are, are being, I need to find the verse real quick, but, um, but it talks about angels. They're cast down, right? They're yeah. cast down. Angels with, as they are with Satan being cast down in the book of Revelation. Now, the word angel just means messenger. That's a very generic word, but we give it a very specific mental picture. Yeah. So I think that a lot of people really need to be aware of what that word means um, because yeah. it's the, the, the one doing the bidding of or the one that's you know carrying this, this ideology or thought or message. So just because an angel looks like a man, like a good angel looks like a man, apparently even to the point of being circumcised. So that's why they're always spoken of as a man in scripture whenever they show up and interact right they're not but yet they're they're somehow a different class of being um they're referred to as angels but they're always doing the biddings that's why they're also called the holy watchers right so it's like these terms are being applied to them for their position and not always for their their genus or species if i could put it like that um and that's where it kind of confuses a lot of folks so i've always wondered that too but not yeah. because of this passage, Ken. Not because of the the relationship between Azazel and the Watchers. I've wondered because of that passage in in Revelation. Yeah, there's that one, and even in Job, in my opinion, like um, it sounds like the sons of God who came with Satan are potentially, you know, Azazel and some other cohorts of his. I mean, it could also just be good sons of God coming with Satan before him, but it also could be the other way too. So, I mean. And I used to I used to believe that that's what that was. That's how I currently still interpret that is is the sons of God that came before Yahweh's throne, along with Satan, were some of the batter like some of the dissenting ones. The only the only way reason I would contend that Job one and two um, is not is not talking about that is because it says the sons of God came before the Father and Satan came with them. So Satan's like tagged on at the end. It's not saying that. Satan came with them with his angels or, you know, a, yeah. I don't know, just the way, the way it words and, and because of what the father says to him in Job 1 and 2, where he says, oh, where you been? <laughs> you know what I mean? And he's just talking yeah. to Basil or just talking to the Satan character. He's not talking to a whole bunch of other angels saying that. He's just saying, where you been? You know, so I just think that that's interesting. Um, yeah, for sure. So here's the thing, though. I don't know after the judgment in and all this judgment that's going down that we're reading about before the flood, would it be possible for other angels to rebel? They know what's going to happen. Well, I mean, that's where we're going to get into some further detail about some of, you know, Jake and, and, and Gadriel and, and further chapters up here who, who participated in some of these things. And so I'm just wondering if that's referring to an earlier rebellion in heaven, kind of um, not associated with the 200 watchers, but you know they didn't partake in the uncleanness and defiling of themselves with women but they're still out they did you know they rebelled in some way they didn't they wanted to join with azazel because they didn't want 
you know, they, they sided with him in terms of, you know, if we take one of the books of Adam and Eve, literally, they didn't want to work. They didn't want to recognize us as being a superior kind. So I'm just wondering if, if he still has other cohorts because of those very things. But yeah, you're right. We don't, we're not giving specific details about whether or not that that's true. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, we'll definitely, I mean, I, chapter 69 is a long ways away, but, um, uh, and so I don't, well, I don't want to like, you know, just skip all the way over and just start fully dissecting 69. Um, yeah. And it's, it's not much of a war, in my opinion, the, the war that happens in the heavens, like where Satan and a third of his angels get cast down. Like it's, if there's myriads and myriads and myriads of holy yeah. ones, it's like, man, how is that a war? How is that even like, how would they, why would they even try to fight if, if the number of the ratio is just so offset, you know? Well, that's why I have a totally different interpretation of that passage in Revelation 12 um, due to my research on, on Mother Babylon. And as far as what that war in the heaven is and the, 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 descri the description of heaven by its definition throughout scripture um, and what that is. And so uh, just given with the rest of the context of Revelation and everything involved, I don't think that battle took place above the firmament. I'll just put it like that, just, yeah. just as a teaser. We can go into that in another episode maybe if we ever get there, but that's probably a special video I'll do in Kingdom of Context at some point. Um, I mean, if, if I haven't been swooped up by government agencies by then. So, <laughs> so yeah. we'll pray. Yeah. We'll pray for that to not happen, yeah. Yeah, because I, I mean, I could compile a ton of modern cinema, movies, TV, and cultural, you know, um, modern media expression to show this idea of, of what I'm talking about. But I think that there's there's it, the battle, the war that goes on in heaven, and these thing, the thing that's actually fallen down, and they're white, why they're cast down to the ground and no longer in the sky above, and prince, you know, the power of the air, right? While they're suddenly on the ground, there's a reason for that. In yeah, my I, I, I'm familiar with your theory on that too. I think it's yeah. interesting. We'll have to we'll have to bring it over eventually. Well, yeah. you want to finish off this chapter real quick? For sure, brother. Um, cool. Verse fifteen: and destroy all the spirits of the reprobate and the children of the watchers, because they have wronged mankind. Destroy all wrong from the face of the earth, and let every evil work come to an end. And let the plant of righteousness and truth appear, and it shall prove a blessing. The works of righteousness and truth shall be planted in truth and joy forevermore. To me, I think this is the first reference of the Messiah. I mean, obviously, we got chapter one. That was, you know, huge. Um, the Son of Man returning in glory with the angels on day of the Lord. But as far as idiomatic terms that we see used by the prophets, this is, like I said before, it's calling him the plant of righteousness. And we see in Isaiah 11, he's called the stem of Jesse. And uh, he's called the branch in Zechariah chapter 6. And so um, I think that it's interesting that it uses these terms. Um, as a thing for truth and righteousness when the watchers used the tree roots of trees and plants as a thing for unrighteousness uh, to create the the reprobates, the offspring, the Nephilim. So and, I think a there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's uh, metaphorized as something also relating to a plant of righteousness that will bring about a ton of resurrected holy and righteous people yeah from a cultivated olive tree that's right that's right it's very interesting so it's like the angels even corrupted uh the metaphor <laughs> yeah i'm kidding you know it's crazy all right uh verse 16 
it says there is no 16 actually in this translation. Yeah. It's interesting. I think they just either forgot to put it in there or whatever, but um, it says, and then all the righteous, and then shall all the righteous escape and shall live till they beget thousands of children. And all the days of their youth and their old age shall they complete. Now, who do you think this is talking about, brother? Well, in my opinion, this is resurrected immortals in the millennial reign. So this is where people would ask me, and they've asked me before, are we going to be able to make procreate and make babies? Yeah, no, we're told that we're not going to. Specifically, there's no, there is no having of marriage in the resurrection will be like the angels, the way they were supposed to specifically be, you know, not married and not procreating. So yeah, this is a, an interesting little, and they shall live till they beget thousands of children. What's your theory on that one? I, this is a, this is a tough one for me, man, because yeah. as much as I've studied the first resurrection and the survivors of the day of the Lord and everything involved, um, and unless the wording is talking about, um, you know, what Paul referred to as having children and being the father of his disciples, um, unless it's unless it's, but it doesn't, unless it's talking specific, literally procreation, then I then I don't know how to interpret this particular passage. I don't know how to. Well, I don't know how to explain Sean, it. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna refer quickly to a different version here that has the word children in. Italics, which would mean that the translator decided to put the word children in there, but we'll see what we got here. And then shall all the holy ones give thanks and live until they have begotten a thousand. So then they add children, while the whole period of their youth and their Sabbath shall be completed in peace. Could this be referring to a thousand years? Yeah, in this translation, it definitely has the inclusion of the word old age added by the translators so that was not in the original text so you're saying your version says and then shall the righteous and the holy and ones. then shall all the holy ones give thanks and live until they have begotten a thousand do you and think, then they add children it could be a, th a thousand years or something i'm not do you it doesn't think, make sense to be got a thousand years what doesn't really grammatically make sense but right and we know but the word children is added and we know that we're not we're not copulating in the resurrection so unless is this referring to some of the could this be referring to the outsiders of um you know the nations that lived through that time well in any way i mean even then are you begetting thousands of children are we talking about offspring i mean here's what i'm saying is the word children included originally if it's not then that could be saying something very different anyway it yeah. could be and, and they they live till they beget a thousand meaning what are you know this idea that we're not dying, we're living to a thousand years and older. Um, just an idea there. Yeah. Their youth and their Sabbath, they shall complete. That lines up with the resurrected body in the, in the millennial reign. Yeah, for sure. So it could be an inclusion of a couple words in here as we see the translators put in that are causing this confusion in this passage. But Yeah. But that one, you know, we'll put a question mark beside that one. Yeah, we can come back to that. Maybe you and I will have to do a little bit of digging, and then maybe next episode we can address it real quick. And because there can't be any, you know, discrepancies between what we know as the scriptures and this, right? If this is teaching that there's going to be procreation from resurrected immortals in the millennial reign, that doesn't line up with the, you know, the canon I sixty six at all. So there's got to be some sort of 
you know, translator bias going on here or something, or well, it's just not right. <laughs> thankfully, that's why, you know, some of these translations do put either brackets or parentheses or they're bold. They'll put it in bold, a word that's actually been inserted into the text um, to make sense of the sentence from the translation, you know, and yeah. from to the English. Does that make sense? Because if you read Hebrew, it would already make sense. But to translate over, you know, that's where we get the term lost in translation. You get the idea of in the English mind, that's where they're having to insert words. And sometimes it can be the wrong word or it can insert and create, you know, different different ideas. So that's why we're always want to look at things in context. Um, so let's look at verse 18 real quick. And then shall the whole earth be tilled in righteousness and shall all be planted with trees and be full of blessing. And all desirable trees shall be planted on it and they shall plant vines on it. And the vine which they planted thereon shall yield wine in abundance. And as for all the seed which is sown thereon, each measure of it shall bear a thousand. And each measure of olives shall yield ten presses of oil. And cleanse thou the earth from all oppression and from all unrighteousness and from all sin and from all godlessness and all the uncleanness that is wrought upon the earth, destroy from off the earth. And all the children of men shall become righteous and all nations shall offer adoration and shall praise me and all shall worship me. And the earth shall be cleansed from all defilement and from all sin and from all punishment and from all torment. And I will never again send them upon it from generation to generation forever. What a beautiful promise. Yeah. And those last couple of verses definitely line up with what we see in the scriptures. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no doubt there. I mean, Isaiah two, two to five says now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of, the house of Yahweh will be established at the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Because why? Azazel's gone, right? The guy who taught all them, all the nations, these things, is removed from the picture. He's no longer, you know, <laughs> a part of it, and it's gonna go away, which is amazing. That's incredible. Right. And we have it doesn't take long. Set him in, in uh, you know, Isaiah sixty verse three says, "Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising." The light of his Torah. I mean, it's it's amazing, and as well, Micah four one to two. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains. And it will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh and to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So, And we, yeah, see, that, we see that paralleled in, in later on in Enoch 25 and 26, where yeah. it talks about Mount Zion is taller than all the other mountains. And that the king's, you know, the the king of ages, the Lord, will sit on his throne, will be on the top of it. In fact, the entire, apparently, the top of the mountain is shaped like the throne. <laughs> in addition, it's huge. Yeah. To be in his throne, but there's all these beautiful trees planted around it as well, in like a what looks like a wreath fashion, um, which could be, you know, why the enemy wants to mirror that with his satanic wreath that we see all throughout, you know, uh, Greek literature and even in symbolism today everywhere um a lot of people may not know that but that's the wreath of you know zeus we see that wreath underneath things all the time 
It's a oh, symbol yeah. of authority and power of kingship. It's the, the Caesars would wear wreaths too, wouldn't they? Caesars wore the wreaths. That's right. Yeah. So that was um, an ancient pagan concept, but we see a literal application of that around the king's throne in Zion, around Yeshua's throne. Um, the real wreath of power, the real king of kings, the real yeah. Lord of lords. So it's very interesting. And we see that in Enoch 25 and 26, which parallels everything you just read beautifully. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's uh, that's the end of uh, chapter 10. And uh, I think that, um, you know, chapter we could, 11 and we 12. We can go through 11, I think, 12 if you yeah. want, because they kind of tie in, right, to what we just discussed. Um, do you want to do 12 as well? Uh, how long is that one? It's looks like four or five verses. Yeah, we can we can end with that one if you want. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll read 11 there. Okay, cool. All right. And in those days, I will open up the store chambers of blessing, which are in the heaven, so as to send them down upon the earth over the work and labor of the children of men. And truth and peace shall be associated together throughout all the days of the world and throughout all the generations of men. So Sean and I have discussed uh, a couple times, we both believe that, you know, the Sabbath, the seventh day that Yahweh set apart from the beginning of creation, the same Sabbath that we are to remember to keep holy and set apart, um, is essentially a remembrance and a, a foreshadowing of what's to come in the millennial reign, right? When it's peace, when we have established a covenant of peace, where we're, we're not laboring and we're not um, under the, you know, the the rule essentially of the God of this world is Azel. He's gone. He's removed. We have peace. That's right. Uh, yeah. That's why there's no war. That's why the earth is being healed from the river of life coming forth from the throne within the new Jerusalem. That's why the leaves of the trees that grow alongside the river of life are used for healing for the nations. Yeah. So you got free health care. Isaiah 55 says, come all thirsty or hungry, come get your food, your drink, your healing. Ezekiel 47, Isaiah 55, Revelation 22 all of it's about the New Jerusalem, the Zion. It is a place everyone wants to be near and around. All the worlds encamp around it. All the nations come and encamp around it. Um, now, there will be a time during the millennial reign that we'll go out and rebuild the cities that have been destroyed. That talks about that in other places. But um, ultimately, in the beginning, after the Messiah returns initially and sets down this New Jerusalem, 1,500 miles squared, that all the nations come and encamp around it because they want to be there. Um, yeah. It's got free food, free water of life, and it's got free health care. And you've got the holy resurrected ones, us, running around inside like little light brights. And then you've got all the angels moving around doing their thing. And you've got the king of glory, right? So you've got an eternal uh, God chilling on the earth, you know, amongst men. And that's why they generic, I think it's Isaiah 62, it says that the New Jerusalem is referred to as the city whom the Lord is there. You know, that's like his nickname. And so everyone wants to be there. They get it. And there's no peace. There's no fighting. Um, people are learning ways of righteousness, as you already wonderfully read. And um, and then, of course, I don't know exactly what the store chambers or blessings are, which are in heaven, but they're coming. So that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know exactly what that is, but it's better than the store chambers of hell that are used for the wicked on the day of the Lord. So um, I think I think that's great, whatever that is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We could be eating manna again, angels' food. Yeah, wouldn't that be that's, crazy? That's an extra biblical text that, that makes uh, an allusion to that. That could be one of the storehouses that gets opened. That would be cool. 
Thanks for joining us, guys. Uh, you, this is, was episode three of Honor of Kings. Uh, we dug deeper into the interaction between the good angels that had to address the activity of the bad angels and how they brought this before the Father, the Most High, and what his response was. And uh, we get to see um, that the judgments pronounced, and we get to see promises for um, the future when the Messiah comes and the resurrection. I mean, it's just a lot of fun material in here. And uh, I hope that everyone enjoyed was edified. I hope that you were reading along with your Bibles out because we referenced other other books in the Bible as well to compare it to. And um, we just hope that this is a blessing to you guys. If you if you do like what you're seeing and hearing, make sure to like, share, and subscribe. If you haven't subscribed to the channel already, just tap the bell. And um, this way uh, you'll be notified when new videos come out. And we uh, we plan to bring these out every, every Saturday night. Okay, that's going to be our weekly schedule. So thanks for joining us. Hey, Ken, you want to say, say goodbye to everybody? This episode? Yeah, no, thank you. You said it beautifully, man. It's uh, I get edified with these conversations, Sean, and I really hope that you guys do as well. I mean, I, the more we discuss these things and just elaborate and break open some of the details that aren't taught in mainstream theology, it just it increases your, your hope and your faith in the promises that come. The more we understand, the more it's going to increase our faith. It is natural, right? So I really hope that this... this um, does what it does to me for you guys. I mean, like I said, I get edified with these conversations and uh, yeah, we look forward to more episodes coming. Thank you again for joining us, everybody. And join us here next time, uh, next Saturday night for Honor of Kings. We'll pick up more in the Book of Enoch. See you guys next time. Bye-bye.